Well, good evening, everyone. Let's open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 8. Acts the 8th chapter, that is where we will begin Q&A night momentarily. For those who are not familiar, never been here for Q&A night, once a month here at Lakeside, we devote a Sunday night to Bible questions that come from our members, they come from our kids, they come sometimes from folks outside of the congregation and they make their way to us. And our goal is simply to take those questions and to place them under the microscope of Scripture to try to find some Bible answers. And sometimes that is easier said than done because we do have folks who are capable of uh, asking some very tough questions, but I am going to do my best this evening to offer up some ideas from the Word of God that I hope will help to satisfy uh, our quandaries, and more importantly, will be accurately representing the truth of God's Word. In particular, this evening, I've got four questions that all revolve around the Apostle Paul. Things about his life, and about the things that he experienced, and even some of the things that he wrote. You know, Peter would say in 2 Peter chapter 3, that some of the things that Paul wrote are hard to understand. And while we'll probably not get into the real weedy stuff, the real meaty, difficult stuff that uh, Paul talked about that was maybe on the more difficult end, we will talk about some things this evening that he wrote that... If nothing else, they cause us to scratch our heads a little bit. And these are good questions. And if I do remember correctly, I think all of these questions sprung out either from Bible classes or from our Bible reading. We're going to get started in that in just a moment. It's great to see everybody tonight. So glad that you are here. Glad to have guests with us uh, once again. Just glad to have the opportunity once more on this first day of the week to be able to worship together and to study together. And since this is, since this is the holidays, it's the season of giving... My gift to you is that I intend to be somewhat abbreviated this evening. I thought, David's laughing, but I made really good time this morning, didn't I? David didn't even commend me this morning for being short-winded, being, you know, kind of, kind of on the brief side, but I'm gonna see if I can go two for two on the same Sunday. Let's give it a try. The clock is officially running now. Let's talk about the Apostle Paul. And let's start with this often asked question. The question is, why did God change Saul's name from Saul to Paul? I ask you to open up to Acts chapter 8. In fact, if you would just look back up in the kind of the concluding verses of Acts chapter 7, in Acts 7 and verse 58, this is the very first mention of this character, Saul. Acts 7, 58, they cast him out of the city and they stoned him, that's Stephen, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. He's expounded on here in the opening verses of chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul approved of Stephen's execution. Here's the really more clear descriptor about this guy, Saul. Look in verse 3. Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, hold that thought and fast forward a little bit, maybe to the middle of the book of Acts. Look in Acts 17. In Acts 17, we've been introduced to this church-persecuting terrorist named Saul... But now here we are just a few chapters later, same exact guy in chapter 17, and we find out that he's a changed man. And in fact, he is a changed man in more than one way. In Acts 17 and verse 2, this is in the city of Thessalonica, verse 2, and Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So one minute he saw the persecutor, and the next minute he is Paul the preacher of the gospel. What is the reason 
for God changing the name of this man. Well, actually, you should know that the Bible never says that the Lord changed His name. Now, if you have been led to believe that, I possibly may be partly to blame for that. Because if I have not just said that outwardly in that way, I certainly have suggested that in times past. The idea that he once upon a time was Saul the persecutor, and then when he was converted, not only did he change spiritually, but God then changed him in other ways too, including giving him a completely different name. But I must tell you that after closer examination, nowhere in the New Testament... Does the Bible say that God changed His name or gave Him a new name or anything along those lines? Now, God certainly has the authority and the ability to change someone's name. And in fact, He has done so in times past. If you go all the way back to the beginning of your Bible, in Genesis chapter 17, probably the first famous example of that, you got a guy named Abram and you got his wife named Sarai. In Acts or Genesis chapter 17, verse 5, God says, Abram, I'm changing your name to Abraham. Some changes were happening in their life, so I'm now going to change your name as well. And you drop down to verse 15 of that same chapter. He says, I'm changing the name of your wife Sarai to Sarah. Again, it's a very slight and subtle change, but the meaning of that name has changed because some things have changed in their life. And God does that time and time again throughout the Bible. One of the most famous examples to me is in chapter 32 of Genesis, in verse 28. After Jacob has wrestled with the Lord, the Lord looks at him and he says, I'm changing your name from Jacob to Israel. That's not a slight change, it's a completely different name. More syllables, different letters, completely different idea. Even in the New Testament, we see Jesus is not averse to changing people's names. When He calls this guy named Simon in John chapter 1, verse 42, He says to him, "Mm, You're Cephas. You're Peter. Completely different name. Completely different meaning to that name. I say all of that simply to say that God does have a track record. He does have a history of officially changing people's names, especially when it ends up accompanying a major change in that person's life. And that probably is the reason why so many of us have just assumed that God changed Saul's name to Paul because he does make this dramatic change. I mean... Can you really think of anybody else in the New Testament who undergoes a more dramatic change in their life than Saul? I can't think of one. And so it just seems natural since he's got this new life as a Christian that, well, he's also going to be given by God a new name. But actually, actually Paul is still identified as Saul about nine times after his conversion. For you note-takers, I have included all nine of those references on the screen there, but can I draw everybody's attention to one of them? Look in Acts 13. In Acts 13, look in verse 2. This is at the church of Antioch, and Saul is there, he is worshiping, and very shortly he's going to be sent out on the first missionary journey, but I want you to notice something that's said here in this verse. In Acts 13, look in verse 2. In Acts 13, verse 2... While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Question. If God or if Jesus changed Saul's name to Paul after he was converted, then why? 
Why do we have the Holy Spirit still referring to him as Saul? Do you really think there was some kind of dissension in the Godhead? The Father and the Son are saying, yep, he's Paul now. And the Holy Spirit's over here saying, no, 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 I'm not calling him that. He's still Saul to me. No, of course not. There's none of that going on. Instead, what needs to happen is, well, we just need to change our thinking. We need to draw a different conclusion than this idea that God changed Saul's name. And the truth of the matter is, it shouldn't be hard for us to come to a different conclusion about that because I believe Acts 13 actually gives us the answer. Would you drop down a little bit further? Look in verse 9. In Acts 13 and in verse 9, the text says there, but Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, etc., etc. Right there is the key. There's no actual name change happening in this man's life. No, what we have here is we have a person who has dual names. Think about it. First of all, being a Jew, a person who was actually proud of his Jewish heritage, being someone who was brought up at the feet of Gamaliel, being someone who was described later on as a Pharisee of the Pharisees, it makes sense that at least for one part of his life or in certain circles of his life, he would go by that name Saul. Saul was a Hebrew name. Probably the most famous Saul prior to this would be King Saul. We read about in the Old Testament, the first king of Israel, who also happens to be from the exact same tribe as this Saul, the tribe of Benjamin. And so it's very fitting that he would go by that name Saul. But Saul also was born in the city of Tarsus. Tarsus was a Roman city, and that afforded him Roman citizenship. So it also makes sense that from time to time, he would go by this name, Paul. Paul is a Greek name. and It is derived from the Latin name or the Latin word Paulus. He was Saul, and he was Paul. And this idea of having dual names, like different, two different names at the same time, it's actually not that uncommon in the Bible. For example, in the book of Esther, in Esther chapter 2, we read about Esther being referred to as Esther, but also being referred to as Hadassah. Esther is her Jewish name. Hadassah is her Persian name. In the book of Daniel, there's those four young men that we meet in Daniel chapter 1, Daniel and his friends. They have Hebrew names, but they also are given Babylonian names. In the New Testament, in Acts chapter 4 and verse 36, we meet a man there by the name of Joseph, but you and I probably know him much better by his other name, Barnabas. In fact, this isn't just a Bible thing. Many immigrants even today in our world, when they come to English-speaking countries, when they come to America, oftentimes they will take on an anglicized name on top of their birth-given ethnic name. Sometimes they do that in order to, to, to fit in a little bit better in the society and in the culture. Sometimes they do that just to make things a little less awkward for those of us Americans who aren't used to, you know, 17-syllable first names. I remember a couple years ago I was in a meeting up at Mill Road up in uh, the Cincinnati area and was meeting folks on Sunday and met a young man there who, him and his family, they had immigrated from Africa several years ago and had uh, placed citizenship here in the United States. And I was introducing myself to him and I asked him for his name and after he said his name, I said, pardon me? <laughs> uh, and that then led to a moment that he probably had encountered many times in his life prior to that. And he said, you can just call me Yao. And I said, I can handle that. 
Brother Yao, loved my brother Yao, getting to talk with him and hang out with him that week. Now, when I called him Yao and other people called him Yao, that didn't change his birth given name. It didn't mean that others couldn't refer to him by that first name that he had been given anymore. No. It just means that he goes by more than just one name. And that's really what's going on here when we look at Paul slash Saul. Now, it is of interest to note that after Acts 13 verse 9, he is known by Paul for the remainder of Scripture as Paul. He's known by that name exclusively. And so really, in many ways, if anybody is to be credited or blamed with changing Saul's name to Paul, it probably would have to be Luke. Because Luke is the one who over and over again throughout the book of Acts keeps referring to him as Paul. In fact, would you notice there in Acts 13? Look in verse 13. Because this kind of is the turning point for how he will be looked at and talked about for the whole remainder of Scripture. In Acts 13, this is verse 13. Now Paul and his companions, they set sail from Paphos and came to Persia in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, this is a very subtle shift, but I find it interesting that Luke identifies him by his Greek name from this point forward as soon as Paul sets off on this first missionary journey away from Jerusalem. Paul was the apostle that was sent to whom? Paul was the apostle that was sent to the Gentiles. That's the mission that God had for him. And so maybe Paul himself, maybe over time, as he went into all of these Gentile territories, Roman, Greek-speaking territories, maybe Paul himself began to adopt the name Paul on a more full-time sort of basis as maybe a way of being able to better interact with people who were not Jews. Perhaps the use of his Roman name was something that he found helped him to be able to kind of reach across the aisle, so to speak. To be able to become as one of them, becoming all things to all men. Maybe help to be able to reach them in a better sort of way. Maybe this is a not so subtle hint for Cain. Cain's moved up to Ohio. Maybe he needs to change his name to Bismo Funyuns. That way you'll be able to reach those Ohio people. Work Bismo Funyuns into two sermons today. But yeah, changing the name, changing different things about a person so that I can reach more people. But in the final analysis, I just want to say, there's no biblical evidence that God changed Paul's name. No, just like many other people in that time and in that world, he had two names. But it is that Greek name, that Roman name, that we most closely associated with his life and with his work. Let's turn our attention now to a question that did come from our Wednesday night Bible class recently as we were studying in 1 Corinthians. Would you look over with me in 1 Corinthians? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that is where this question comes from, as Paul is making the case here for the resurrection, the bodily resurrection that will occur for all people one day. And in the middle of that lengthy discussion, he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, this is verse 32. He says, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Whoa! What exactly is that? That is the second question. Who or what are these beasts at Ephesus? Well, we do know a little bit about Paul's time in the city of Ephesus. In Acts the 19th chapter, we read about Paul coming to Ephesus at the end of his second missionary journey, and we actually find that Paul stays in that city 
much longer than he stays in nearly any other place that he goes. He stays nearly three years there, working with those brethren, working with that congregation. You remember he has the very tearful goodbye to those Ephesian elders as he's about to leave them at the end of that three years. But we also know as well that Paul didn't always have it easy when he was in Ephesus trying to preach and teach the Word of God. Early on in the early verses of Acts chapter 19, we read about there being some opposition. There were those, verse 9, who became stubborn, hardened in unbelief, began to speak evil of the way. And then, of course, later on in chapter 19, there's that famous episode there where a riot breaks out in the city of Ephesus. Demetrius and some of the other craftspeople in that town, they realize that, hey, this Paul, his teaching and the stuff that he's bringing here into our town, it's... It's affecting us. It's hurting our bottom line for our business. We make little trinkets. We make little souvenirs. We make little idols for the people who come here to worship the goddess Diana or Artemis, depending on your translation. And so it is possible that Paul is probably referring to something that happened during that three-year window that he was in Ephesus. But we are still left to wonder. You can read Acts chapter 19, top to bottom. We're still left to wonder... Well, what exactly are these beasts at Ephesus? It doesn't say anything about beasts when you read Acts 19. Maybe, is it possible, did he actually fight with literal wild beasts? Is he talking about an encounter with real, rabid, wild animals? And if so, what kind of animals are we talking about? There was a large arena in the city of Ephesus. And this was common in many large cities in New Testament times. It was a large arena. It was estimated maybe you could fit as many as 25,000 people in that arena in Ephesus. And it was often used for what is referred to as the damnatio ad bestius. And that's simply the Latin term for condemnation by the beasts. It was a form of Roman capital punishment in which the condemned person, here's a criminal person who's been arrested for doing some bad thing, and they then are going to be punished by being thrown out into the middle of this arena where wild beasts are going to maul them, they're going to attack them, and ultimately they're going to kill them. You've maybe seen this in movies before, like Gladiator and those sorts of movies. Usually the wild beast is a lion or some other kind of large, ferocious cat. But it was a blood sport. And it was considered to be entertainment. It was entertainment for people who were kind of in the the, the lower rungs of Roman society at that time. And that punishment was reserved for the very worst kinds of criminals. It was reserved for runaway slaves. And the third category that it was reserved for was for Christians. Paul certainly fits that third category, doesn't he? However, I'm going to say that I think it's rather implausible for us to conclude that this is what Paul is talking about when he talks about wrestling and fighting with wild beasts at Ephesus. And I'll give you several reasons. For one, if this was the case... Paul probably would not have survived. If he was thrown to the lions, he probably did not walk out of there to be able to tell the tale and then talk about, I wrestled with the wild beasts at Ephesus. That that probably didn't happen. Secondly, even if by by, by some providential, miraculous help from God, maybe he does survive, it is of note to me that Paul never mentions that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, for example, that's one of those passages where Paul gives a big long list of all the trials and the hardships and the persecutions that he's had to endure as a Christian. Paul lists off all kinds of different things that he had to endure, but nowhere in that list does he mention anything about being thrown to the wild beast. 
Furthermore, Luke, in his record in Acts, he doesn't say anything about that. I tend to believe that's a, that's a pretty big detail Luke would probably want to include if Paul really did fight and somehow get out alive after fighting wild beasts. And then furthermore, this is probably the most telling to me, furthermore, if Paul had been thrown to the Adbestius, he would have lost his Roman citizenship. That was part of the consequences of being thrown to the wild beasts. But of course, later on in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 25, we know that Paul still has his Roman citizenship, and he uses that to say, I appeal to Caesar. And that then affords him the opportunity to go to Rome and to stand before the Caesar. And so I'm not persuaded that we're supposed to take this statement literally uh, in the sense that Paul actually fought with wild, animal, ravenous beasts. I believe Paul instead, as he often does, I believe he's using this expression figuratively. He's using that expression metaphorically. In fact, if you look again there at 1 Corinthians 15, look at verse 32 again. I believe what Paul is describing there is he's describing how he had to contend with a philosophy, with a way of thinking that was evident at Ephesus, which was in direct opposition to the message of the resurrection. In fact, that philosophy is probably referenced in this verse. Would you look at the back half of verse 32? Verse 32, Paul talks about the idea or the the philosophy, the way of thinking that said, Oh, let us eat and drink today, for tomorrow we're going to die. That was the mantra of many of the the, the so-called smart groups, the, the philosophical groups like the Epicureans and other wisdom schools of thought at that time. That you know what? There's... There's nothing after you die. There's no resurrection hope. There's no reason to prepare for that. There's no reason to live in anticipation of such a thing. So hey, we might as well just live it up today. Case hurrah, hurrah. Let's just have a good time right now. And it seems that what Paul is suggesting is that those who held and lived their lives according to that ideology, oftentimes they would become the most vociferous. They would become the most militant. They were the most violent and dangerous opponents that he faced because he was preaching and he was presenting something. He was presenting a system of faith that was in direct opposition to that K-sera-sera lifestyle that they were living. In fact, think about that riot that did break out in Acts chapter 19. Those people heard some things that was a complete affront to their way of life and their way of doing things. I think it is in that sense that Paul talks about he was wrestling, he was fighting with wild beasts at Ephesus. And so while Scripture maybe does not give us all the specifics, we don't know the specific altercation or altercations that Paul is referring to, I believe that we and the Corinthians were meaning to understand that expression in a figurative sense not in a literal sense. Since we're talking about curious expressions that Paul uses in his writing, let's look at one in 2 Corinthians. Would you look in 2 Corinthians? We'll bang out these last couple of questions pretty fast. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, this is where the third question comes from. And it's for an expression for something that's talked about here in verse 18. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and in verse 18, Paul tells the Corinthians, I'm going to be sending some people to you. He says he's going to be sending Titus in the previous verses. Then in verse 18 he says, And with him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. Here's our question. Who is that? Who is this mystery person? Who is this brother that is famous 
for his preaching. I'll tell you, I've, I've known lots of preachers in my lifetime that through my eyes, especially as I was younger, they seemed pretty famous. They seem to have some measure of fame uh, amongst the brotherhood. These were the ones who would hold lots of gospel meetings. They calendar just stay booked up with meetings here and there and yonder. They traveled all across the country and everybody seemed to know brother, you know, brother big name. Well, evidently that's not just a 21st century thing. Evidently there were famous preachers even in the first century. And imagine this. Think about this. Whoever this famous brother is, Paul. The Apostle Paul is the one who is bestowing upon him that accolade. Can you imagine having that kind of thing said about you by the Apostle Paul? Someone I would consider to be one of the greatest, one of the most famous preachers of all time. So who exactly is this mystery preacher that's being talked about here? You can continue reading the rest of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and you'll not find any specific mention that this is who I'm talking about. Whoever it is, as you look there at verse 18... Whoever it is, it's clearly somebody that Paul has lots of trust, lots of confidence in. I'm going to send him to you. I'm trusting this guy to come to you. It's someone who probably has lots of ability, someone who is well regarded. That probably makes us start to think, could it be Apollos? Apollos is spoken of as being an eloquent speaker. Whoever it is, Paul doesn't even feel the need to call him by name because the Corinthians would know this brother. Hey, I can just make a passing reference to the famous brother and they're going to know him once again. Maybe we're thinking, maybe it's Apollos. We know that Apollos worked with that church at Corinth. His name is all through the first Corinthian letter. So who could this be? Well, you may be surprised to learn that Apollos is not who most people think that it is. Nearly every scholar, I've read all kinds of commentators and all kinds of other authors, nearly everyone contends that it's not Apollos, but rather, rather it is the good Dr. Luke. And there probably is some good reasons to conclude that. Luke is so famous for traveling with Paul. When you're reading the book of Acts and all these things that Paul is doing, all the things that Paul is experiencing, who's right there with him? It's not stated, but who's with him? Luke. He's he's witnessing this thing. Many times Luke will even say, we experienced this. We saw this. I was right there for it. In fact, in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 11, as Paul is nearing the end of his life, he makes mention that the only companion I have left, the only one who is here with me right now, is Luke. And Paul recognizes, here's a guy, I don't even have to call by name. Everybody knows who Luke is. Everybody knows Luke, he's kind of my right-hand man. He's one of my protégés. He is the author of that amazing gospel that bears his name. And maybe as well, he is the one who's going around, as he's talking about he's famous for his preaching, maybe this guy, what he's famous for, is he's famous for preaching from that gospel that he authored himself. Maybe he's even doing some preaching from the sequel to that gospel, which is the book of Acts, which maybe that was still in the in the writing phases at this time. How cool would it have been to have Luke in your congregation, and he's going to preach for you the gospel of Luke. Or are you going to preach to you the Acts of the Apostles? Yeah, that's amazing. That's like having an author come and read their own book and have them share with you their own insights. There are even as well some external evidences for Luke being the one that Paul is referring to here. Some of those early, and I'm putting in quotations, those early church fathers, they make reference to this. Ignatius, who was a first century writer, he said that this was a reference to Luke. Eusebius, who was a second century writer, he said that this is talking about Luke. Jerome, who was a third century writer, he said that all of these guys and others credit Luke. And this is, I'm 
citing those people because those people lived close to the time of that writing. In fact, Ignatius would have lived right in the midst of that time. And they all said it was just known that Luke is the preacher who is being praised in that text. Now, we may get to heaven someday, and we may find out that it's, it's not even Luke at all. We may find out that it is Apollos. We may find out that it's some other person mentioned in Scripture. We may find out that it's somebody we've never even heard of before because the Bible doesn't even make mention of them. I want to remind you, those sources, those are all uninspired sources, so you have to take those with a grain of salt. But for a question that the Bible does not answer for us, it does seem to be there's an amazing amount of consensus outside of Scripture that this seems to be talking about Luke. You If you find something else out about that, I'd love to be able to to hear it and to consider that as well. All of that then brings us to this last question since we're here in 2 Corinthians. Just turn a page or two to chapter 11. In chapter 11, here's where this last question comes from. It's from verse 5. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, Paul says, Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to the super apostles. Once again, who is it? Who are these super apostles? Kind of makes it sound like there maybe are degrees in the apostleship. It was those twelve apostles, and Paul's like this. He's this thirteenth one. So, like, I mean, what was the ranking system like there? Did you, after a period of time, maybe after you, you know, kind of get some tenure there, then you elevate to super apostle position? Not exactly sure how that's going on. Well. Eh, it's actually none of that that's going on here. And in fact, this question won't take long to answer if we'll just look at the context. If you just pull this verse out by itself, we're just going to be left to conjecture and opinions and all kinds of head-scratching. But if we look at it in its context, we can figure it out pretty quickly. Just back up to verse 1. Paul writes to the Corinthians who he is very concerned about. And he says in verse 1, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband, that of course would be to Jesus, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, that your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one that we proclaim, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. People come in and they tell you all kinds of different ideas than what we first taught you, and you're just swallowing the Kool-Aid. You're just taking it right down. Verse 5, Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Paul is concerned here that the Corinthians are believing the lies and the false doctrines of false teachers. That's what's going on here. That's the basis for this particular admonition. There were people who were coming along and they were attempting to to discredit Paul to discredit his teaching, and yes, to even discredit his apostleship. Oh, that guy's not an apostle. Have you heard him speak? He's not a good speaker at all. Paul even kind of acknowledges verse. Hey, maybe I'm not the best speaker in the world, but that's not the measure of an apostle. And so what Paul does here in verse 5 is Paul uses one of my favorite ways of communicating. Paul uses sarcasm. 
He uses sarcasm to say that, hey, these mudslingers who are coming into your midst and they're saying all this stuff and they're spouting all this venom, oh, they just appear to you, I'm sure, to be so superior. They're just so dignified. And they just seem so authoritative in the things that they say. They just look the part. They are. They are super apostles. In fact, if Paul could have been there in person to read this letter, he would have done what we often do when we use sarcasm. He would have said they are super apostles. And he would have did the air quotes right around that so that they would know he's being sarcastic. These guys that are coming amongst you, Paul says, they're not apostles. They think they are. They're trying to make you think that they are. But they're not apostles in the least. They are nothing. In fact, if you drop down in the text, drop down to verse 13. In verse 13, Paul says, For such men are false apostles. False apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Paul's admonition, Paul's warning is, don't listen to them. Don't listen to those people. You need to carefully weigh everything that you hear alongside the apostolic teaching that you receive from us. You do that, and you'll know that you're on the right path. Now, those are the four questions that I've got for tonight. I... Certainly would solicit your additional ideas and thoughts about any of the questions and the answers that were presented along these lines. And I always continue to encourage more questions. I've still got a folder full of stuff and we get to them as we're able to get to them. But as we extend the invitation of the Lord this evening, can I draw your attention to what Paul said there to the Corinthians, the St. Corinthians chapter 11 again? Paul says what my desire is. And he says I have, have almost a jealousy for you. I I was there in the beginning, in the infancy of your walk with Christ. And so I want very much for you to be protected, to be shielded from from false ideas and from false teachings. Paul says the goal here, verse 3, is so that you will not be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul's ultimate goal was that these people would be able to be presented to Jesus as a pure virgin. And the truth is, that hasn't changed for us. That is the Lord's desire for us as well. That would be Paul's desire for us as well if he were still here to talk to us today. That we might be molded and be shaped by the teaching that God gave to His apostles to then be transmitted to us. That we might be trained and be ready for a sincere devotion to Christ so that we might then be presented to Him on the day of judgment pure and ready to enter in to that wonderful place called heaven. Are you prepared for that? Have you made the preparations necessary so that you can be presented to the Lord in that day as that that, that wife, that bride that the Lord wants us to be? If you're not a Christian this evening, you most certainly are not prepared for that. But we want to encourage you to become a Christian. We forward this opportunity at the conclusion of every service for anyone who needs to make those initial changes in their life to become a Christian, to confess their faith in Christ, to repent and turn from sin, to be baptized in water for the remission of your sins. That's how you respond and that's how you access the grace of the Lord and that's how you receive forgiveness so that you can become a Christian. Can we help you to do that? Brother or sister, can we help you to serve the Lord in a better way? It may be that your walk with the Lord right now, it's it's not pure, it's not sincere, and there's not a whole lot of devotion there. You need to fix that. You need to repent. You need to come back to the Lord, serve Him in a better way. Let us pray with you. Let us encourage you and help you in whatever way that we can. Whatever your need may be, this is your invitation and your opportunity. Would you take advantage of it right now? Do that by coming to the front while we stand and while we sing.